First Kings chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and it said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshah, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Saphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death.
Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is getting a little scary. This is the second week in a row I've had to lead worship, and sometime and somewhere in the course of the worship practice and whatnot, I, I misplaced my Bible yet again. So I'm watching this. I don't know. Uh, you can. I'm getting old. I guess I don't know. But uh, it's always a privilege to come before the Lord and I sit under the ministry of His Word. And if you've been with us throughout the summer, uh, we've been doing something a little bit different. So each week than we normally do, we normally work our way just through books of the Bible, just what uh, taking what the Lord gives us in His Word. But over the summer, we put that on pause, and we've been looking at difficult questions that um, are raised almost like an, an objection to Christianity or to Christ or to the Scriptures, uh, objections or issues that have served as barriers to people entrusting their lives and faith to Christ. Uh, and today we're looking at um, perhaps one of the age-old questions, right? How do we make sense of God and all the evil and suffering that's in the world, right? This is a question that is, um, you know, uh, has been around for, for generations and generations, going back all the way, well, we'll talk how it's really latent all throughout the scriptures too. How do we make sense of God in the midst of all the evil, wickedness, and suffering that goes on in the world, right? I don't need to tell you. Open up your news feeds in the morning, see headlines of war tearing apart nations, families, people, uh, violence, gun violence, you know, tearing apart neighborhoods up in North Philly, uh, or you know, political turmoil and garbage that's going on, or just the polarization and the animosity and the division that exists on a cultural level. Or maybe you don't even need to open your news feeds. Maybe uh, you know firsthand <laughs> that there is a heaviness to life. Maybe, I know there are many of you here who have recently had to grieve the loss of loved ones, and you just have this gaping hole and this gaping sadness in your life. Well, there are some of you who are facing trying and heavy and uncertain circumstances. Well, there are some of you who are facing medical treatment and are having to go in on a daily basis to receive radiation and all that that brings to it. Well, there's maybe some of you who are just weary in life, you know, from the constant barrage of anxious thoughts that weigh heavy on you or depressive feelings and emotions that you can't seem to escape. All right, and in those moments and in those trying times, in the midst of those circumstances, right, who of us has not asked that question? What am I to make of God in the midst of this hardship and in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this evil that seems to plague his creation? How do I make sense of a God who is invested in his creation, who is powerful and loving and compassionate and seems to allow this to occur? So that's what we're going to be looking at. And here's the thing uh, this morning, perhaps to some of you's uh, frustration over the summer, and I've been saying this each week, I've been more inclined to answer the form of the question that comes from the outside world, from those who have not yet entrusted their life to faith, right? As opposed to answering the particular form of each question that you might have as maybe a lifelong or uh, you know, a follower of Jesus for many years or whatever. Like in case in point, last week, 
When we were talking about women in the church, we weren't looking at the particular question that we all might ask. What exactly does the Bible say in relation to women in leadership or the homes or whatever? We were more looking at the cultural question of, hey, aren't those churches that have their exclusive male leadership, aren't those churches oppressive towards women? Right? Or when we were looking at LGBTQ issues, we weren't looking at what all does the Bible have to say about LGBTQ issues? issues, but more the cultural question is that isn't the Bible and isn't the church and isn't the followers of Jesus, aren't they bigoted towards or aren't they opposed towards those in that community and their rights or whatever, okay? But this morning, I feel like I'm answering more the question of the insider, the questions and the wrestling of those who have entrusted their lives to Christ and wrestle with this question. I think part of the reason for that is it's just my own struggle. I don't even necessarily know how to understand or make sense of the concepts or the terms evil and suffering in a world or a worldview where there isn't a creator who has created all things, who upholds all things, who is redeeming all things, right? Or, or if there is no transcendent objective source of truth beyond myself and my own mind or what I can observe, observe of the natural world. Like, I don't even, like, in that context, uh, evil just seems a terribly subjective term. Like, if I come into your house, I break into your house at night, and I hold you up at gunpoint, I steal a couple thousand dollars from you, and, you know, on my way out, you turn to me and say, this is evil, this is wrong, how can you do this? I might turn back and say, I beg to differ. (laughs) It might be evil for you, but it seems good for me. I've now got enough money to go buy a jet ski and maybe a tank of gas to fill it up so I can ride it around on the lake. This all seems great to me. Or if my kids, heaven forbid, someday wake up and on their way to school, they come down and they decide they wanted to wear a shirt with a nice blue and silver star on it. It says Dallas Cowboys. Right? We're going to have a long conversation. And I'm going to tell them how they are breaking some objective moral code out there and they're in danger of the fires of judgment. (laughs) Right? But the reality is that's only because I exist and they live in my house and they bear the name of Sussex and they have to represent that name wherever they go. In a world where maybe, strangely, I don't exist, but they do, as much as I would like to think that it's an objective moral standard that you can't wear any paraphernalia that would reflect Dallas. There is no objective more. That's, that's their call. It's their choice because I'm not there to set the rules and there's no Sussex name, whatever. You understand what I'm saying a little bit? There's probably a lot more that we could talk about that, but the thought of preaching a sermon that kept circling back around on that point just seemed terribly boring and useless for us here this morning. So I'm not going down there. I want to talk about, for those of us who have entrusted our lives to Christ, how do we make sense of the suffering out there, the suffering that we experience or, or maybe we'll ask the questions that, you know, just litter the pages of Scripture, right? Because Scripture, it presumes the reality of hardship and suffering and evil, right? Because the, scripture, the Scriptures are a story of God's redemption plan, right? The, the Scriptures from page 4 all the way to the end are a redemption story, which presumes that something has gone terribly wrong. And so all the way through the scriptures, as people are enduring that, there are loads of questions. It's never the question, well, in light of all the suffering and evil I'm experiencing, I'm not so sure God exists anymore. It's more the questions of God, why? 
Why do you allow this? Or, or how long, O oh, faithful and true, until you judge the world? Or, or where are you? Why do you seem so far from my groaning and my crying? Why have you forsaken me? Why does it seem like the darkness is my only companion? Psalm 88. That's the questions more that we're wrestling with here this morning. And the way we're going to do that is by just working through this little episode in the life of Elijah. I don't know why, but this one stood out to me, maybe because it's been encouraging and somewhat convicting to me uh, at times. And so we're just going to kind of talk our way through this, not exhaust by all means the question uh, before us, but maybe just to get a few guiding principles for how we think and make sense of suffering, evil, and yet God, who we know and exist in relationship with. Okay? So Elijah, uh, he's one of the epic characters in the Old Testament. He's kind of an interesting character. He sort of just shows up out of nowhere. Uh, But he's one of the great heroes, really, of the Old Testament. The closing verses of the Old Testament uh, quite literally are that, hey, I'm going to send Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the children towards their fathers and the hearts of their fathers towards the children, lest that day become a great day of judgment and destruction. Uh, and actually, as we enter into the Elijah story here, this is coming off the great climactic event, perhaps, in the life of Elijah. Elijah's a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, where Ahab is king. And Ahab has married this wife, Jezebel, who is the daughter of the king of Tyre. There was some sort of arrangement that took place there. Ahab married the daughter of the king of Tyre. And she also happens to be a priestess of the god Baal. Right, the god of Tyre. And uh, she comes into Israel and enters into the palace. It becomes her sole agenda to convert the people of Israel to the worship and the idolatry of Baal. Right, And so she's on this rampage, and she's killing all the prophets of Yahweh, the true god of Israel. Elijah has to flee, take off. Um, and so it's just a dark and wicked time, and you know the nation is following her and Ahab and their worship of Baal. And so we all, it all comes to this climactic showdown on the top of Mount Carmel where Elijah summons 450 prophets and priests of Baal and a lot of people of Israel. And he says, all right, let's have it. You 450 prophets and priests of Baal, build yourselves an altar and put some wood on top of that altar and, you know, cut up a bull and put the pieces on top of the altar. And then you cry out to your God. You cry out to Baal. And have, let's see if he comes down and consumes this offering that you have made to him. Right? And so they, they do that and they start calling out to Baal and nothing. And Elijah starts to mock them a little bit. They say, come on, guys, what's going on here? Where's your God? Is he falling asleep? Is he out relieving himself somewhere using the facilities or whatever? Let's, you know, let's, let's see it. And so the guys start, start working up in a frenzy. They start cutting themselves and pouring blood everywhere. And yet, nothing from the heavens. So Elijah says, okay, enough, my turn. Takes 12 stones, 12 tribes of Israel, piles them up, puts some wood up top, puts the pieces of his bull on top of that. He digs a trench around this thing, and he tells the guys to douse it with water. He says, no, nah, that's not enough. Put more water on it. And they say, no, nah, still not enough. Put more water on it. Water's running all over this thing, filling up the latrine, the trench there. And, and so then Elijah prays, you know, Yahweh, come and reveal yourself as the one true God of Israel, and me as your faithful servant. And just like that, the heavens open, and fire comes down and consumes the sacrifice. 
And it consumes the wood and it consumes even the rocks and the stones. And it's even licking up and drying all the water that's poured around and gathered in the trenches. And all the people, they fall on their face in fear of the living God. And they take these prophets of Baal and these priests of Baal and they take them out and they slaughter them. Right? And at the close of chapter 18, the passage right before this, this um, where we last leave Elijah, he's, he's bolting towards Jezreel. Right? And he's in full sprint. Like he's even running faster than Ahab to get all the way back to Jezreel. So here's the question. Why is he bolting to Jezreel? Jezreel was the capital city in the northern kingdom of Israel at this point in time. And so why is he going there? He's going there thinking, okay, at long last, this is it. God has shown up. He's proven himself over against the utter worthlessness of this God, Baal. The people have seen it. They've bowed down. We've dealt with the prophets. So I'm going there, and I am expecting that finally the political establishment, the full kingdom is going to see this and realize it, and there's going to be this great conversion back to the living God. All right, so he's all excited. He's sprinting ahead. He wants to see this. And what happens when he gets there? Ahab, Ahab tells Jezebel all that happened. I don't know what's up with this guy, Ahab, but, <laughs> but Jezebel says, yeah, this is what we're going to do, actually. The God do to me if I don't do to you, Elijah, what you've just done to my prophets. In other words, I'm swearing by the gods here. If I don't put you to death, then may those gods do it to me. Just like pause there for a second. You imagine, you just put yourself in Elijah's suit. Are you kidding me? God has just publicly humiliated your God. Removed all manner of doubt of who alone sits in the heavens. The people have seen it. The word has come to you. And yet, in your defiance, you resist and you want to put me to death. Here's maybe the first simple and perhaps blatantly obvious principle or point to make from this text and really the whole biblical storyline is that the Bible is one, again, we already said it, that presumes that there is such a a thing as evil and wickedness and suffering. Right? In other words, Christianity would not be like one of those Eastern religions, maybe, that would say, hey, you know, in a philosophical concept, suffering is just maya, it's just an illusion, and as you are able to transcend and detach yourself from any attachments and relationships with others or this creation, right? You find that suffering is just that. It's just an illusion. It's just a result of all these attachments that you have, right? The Bible is not like that. The Bible says, no, 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 no. This creation is a good and rich and beautiful place, and you should live in rich attachment to it, right? And this life that I've intended for you is one that was meant to be lived abundantly, Right? So you should live with a deep desire and attachment to life. Okay, but the Bible also paints this reality that there is this immense conflict that's taking place. There are these spiritual forces, these empires, these people who are hell-bent, not only of breaking free from the restraint of living under the rule and the authority of a creator, but also undoing everything that that creator sets out to do. Right, the great dignity of mankind, we've talked about this a little bit over the summer, is that they were charged in the very beginning to be God's image, his representatives, his stewards and caretakers of his creation, to hold at bay the forces of chaos that would disrupt the goodness of his creation. And that the tragedy of mankind is they've not only allowed 
those forces to creep back in to creation, but they've allowed them to speak and they've listened to them and they've sided with them and they've aligned their lives with them over and against the creator. And it creates all sorts of havoc, suffering, injustice, and evil, right? So first point The Bible acknowledges that reality. And you see it plainly in this story. And what you also see, too, is that this can be crushing at times. Right? It's certainly crushing for Elijah. text says he sees this, and he flees for his life. He flees down into the southern kingdom of Judah, down to Beersheba. And there he drops off his servant, and he heads out another day's journey into the middle of the wilderness. He sits under a broom tree, and he cries out to God, Enough! Now, end my life. Right? Uh, and we might be tempted to say, boy, that's a little extreme. I mean, you know, but just before we go there, just remember that this, this is more common than you might think throughout the scriptures. If you just remember, right, this, this whole scene that's reminiscent of Jonah, right? At the end of his story, he sits underneath another plant, and things didn't play out the way he anticipated them to be. And, said, and he, so he just cries out, God, it would be better for me to be dead than alive. When you think of Job, right? When he's experiencing the gut-wrenching pain of his own suffering and his own trial, as he's wrestling and pleading with God, part of the questions he's asking God, why did you even cause me to be born if my life was going to be so much struggle and so much pain? Would it not have been better for me not even to exist? What do you think of the psalmists? As they're on the run, as they're hiding in caves, you know, crying out to God in similar fashion. What do you think of the Apostle Paul, right, when he's writing, you know, to the church in Corinth, and he says, brothers, I, I, would have, I would remind you that of the calamities that we faced in Eastern Asia, where, you know, so much affliction and so much trial to the point where we despaired of life itself. Or when he's writing to the Philippians from jail, and he's saying, look, Perfectly honest, it's better for me to depart this life, to die and to be present with my Savior. Yet I have a job to do, and so for your sake I press on, right? But this is something, a common theme. And I wonder even, too, it might not just be a common theme in the pages of Scripture. I wonder if there's even, well, I would imagine there are, you know, a few of us even here who at times, when faced with the heaviness of the burdens and the struggles, or faced with the deep and unrelenting sadness, or just with the the haunting anxiety, whatever it is, in the quiet of the night as we close our eyes in prayer before the Lord, maybe it has even crossed your own mind, and Lord, would it be that maybe I don't wake up in the morning? Right? So the Bible recognizes, you see it in the, you see it in the lips of the heroes, quote-unquote, of the Bible, all throughout it, okay? But even before we go there, let, let's just pause for a second and say, okay, there, there's a few other things we have to talk about here about uh, Elijah's experience of suffering in this moment, you know, because the thing is, if you know the Elijah story, God has provided in, in some pretty powerful ways for Elijah. There's a drought and a famine that's going on in Israel here for three years, yet God has provided for Elijah. The ravens have brought him food. Springs of water have brought him, you know, water. He's seen a young boy come back to life, right? Not to mention this powerful display of God, you know, over atop the prophets of Baal and all that, right? So, Part of Elijah's hardship here is that you can imagine that somehow the gaze of Elijah has gotten off of the glory and the power and the faithfulness of God, and now he's maybe just a little bit more consumed with the power and the glory of the enemy. Right? Of Jezebel, who's on the hunt for him. 
You know, and this is something that suffering does. I was just talking with one of you about this here this past week, where, you know, sometimes when we get, when we find ourselves in trying and difficult circumstances, we get this tunnel vision where all we can see is the hardship and the trial in front of us. And that's the greatest thing. That's the biggest thing, right? This happens through the scriptures too, mind you, right? You think about the Israelites who, you know, after God in, in dramatic fashion delivered them from slavery in Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea and swallowed up the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Yet the moment they get out in the wilderness and their tummies grumble and whatever, what do they say to Moses? <laughs> oh, Moses, what if you brought us out here to die? Would that we were back in Egypt and slaves because at least there we had food to eat, right? We get this tunnel vision. And part of the hardship and suffering we experience is that because in the midst of that, there's just something endemic in the human heart that we lose sight of the glory and the power of God as he's proven himself to us time and time again. I think the other thing for Elijah is he's lost sight just a little bit of his role as Yahweh's servant. Right? You pick this up where he says, okay, enough, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my fathers before me. What's he saying there? He's saying, yeah, my fathers, the prophets before me, right? They went out and they couldn't convert the nation. And here I've come and I've tried. I've lived zealously for the Lord. I've done everything I possibly can. And I can't convert these darn people either. And so, enough. Actually, the whole little episode where he leaves his servant in Beersheba, uh, some commentators would point out, you know, he doesn't have a servant there because he's part of the upper class, and so I have servants to attend to me. No, he's a servant. That's like his executive assistant, but in relation to his role as a prophet, uh, or, you know, that's his, his intern, if you will, or whatever. And so the fact that he leaves his intern in Beersheba could be this indication. He said, okay, yeah, I'm done here. <laughs> this whole prophetic job that I've been on, we're going to call it now. You can stay here. Let me go on my way. Maybe, maybe not, but... There's some indication along those lines. Again, <laughs> that, you know, part of Elijah's hardship and suffering here is that he, he forgets a little bit that he is just uh, God's servant in all of this, right? Or something that has happened. Like he's transitioned from this mindset, I'm God's servant. I simply do the bidding of my Lord, whatever he calls Something has transitioned where now he's a little bit more... I don't know, success or accomplishment driven. He wants something that he can hang his hat on so he can look at his life and say, okay, clearly there's some meaning, there's some value here or something, right? Who of us have not been in that position as well too, right? Where we wake up in the morning with the mindset, okay, whatever I could, whatever I go at this morning, my job, my family, whatever, I am a servant of the Lord, whatever it is the Lord wants to accomplish through me. But then somewhere along the way, maybe we become... You know, we just embrace that whole cultural mindset of success-driven or accomplishment-driven, and if we can't hang our hat on something, we come home in despair. I think it's definitely a certain part of what Elijah's going. Which is all to say, look, in, the world, in our world, in our culture, if you ask the question of why suffering, I feel like, you know, there's two cultural answers. You have the one side that would blame, you know, injustice and all the broken institutions that we are just victims of. Or there's the other side that would come and say, oh, no, no, it's all about personal responsibility and you haven't worked hard enough or you are not living faithfully enough. And if you just get your act together and get your button gear or whatever, then suffering will fade away. And we seem like polarized on those two issues. Um, the Bible 
refuses to play, you know, to go to one, one pole or the other, where the Bible says, yeah, no, there is this brokenness. There are these broken institutions that cause intense injustice and oppression, which we do suffer under. And we also bring very active hearts to that. And those hearts have been swayed and influenced by, you know, these forces of darkness and chaos that have crept in, right? And all that weaves together in our experience of hardship and suffering. And I think you see that here in the life of Elijah. Okay? So, suffering. Brutal reality. It is at times crushing. It's something that is part of a broken world that we live in. It's also something that we bring very active hearts to as well, too. Okay? So quickly now, God begins to enter this scene. And I'm very thankful for how God deals with Elijah. Right? First off, when he sends his angel, he doesn't come to Elijah and say, Elijah, what in the world are you doing? Come on, Elijah. You're supposed to be my prophet. You're supposed to be my representative here. How are the people going to you know, hear about me and my truth if they don't get up and do that. Or he doesn't come scolding Elijah. Elijah, you've lost sense of my glory. How many times do I have to prove myself to you and yet you're afraid of this lunatic Jezebel back in the, in the palace or whatever? Or he doesn't come to Elijah and point out the blatant irony here. Elijah, you're all in a huff because the people aren't converting to me and yet I've shown myself to you time and time again and you're sitting here ready to throw in a towel and say, take my life. How do you expect them Right? Do you see the irony? I'm thankful that God doesn't come to Elijah that way. Right? But first off, he sends his angel to bake him a cake. <laughs> right? He bakes him a cake, gives him a jug of water. He says, Elijah, come on, wake up, eat, drink. Elijah eats, drink, goes back to sleep. Angel bakes him another cake and gets him more wine. Elijah, eat and drink. It reminds me uh, a little bit. I hesitate to say this, but when, when uh, Amy and I were, were more recently married and, and I would come home and I could tell, I could see Amy was having a hard day or whatever, I, I didn't know what to do with that. I still don't always know what to do with that. I'm still learning as we go. But my MO back then was, okay, I just got back in the car and I drove down to Dairy Queen and I got uh, a medium Heath Bar Blizzard with a mix of chocolate and vanilla ice cream and extra topping. I don't come home without the extra topping. And I would just come home and slide that across the table and just see what that did, right? Like similar mindset here. Okay, but the, the really neat thing about this is that I had to do that out of just sheer ignorance. I don't know what to do here. This is the best I got. God is relating to Elijah here knowing exactly what Elijah needs and knowing the ins and outs and knowing what's going on in Elijah. And yet God's response is, let me bake you a cake. Get you some water. Get you some rest. It's like God knows. Okay, Elijah, hold on. Just before we dive into any of this, what you need is some rest and a good meal. And that's oftentimes what maybe you and I need in times of trial and struggle, right? It reminds me actually on a more holy note of Psalm 103, where God says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, and he knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. For mankind, we're like the grass of the field that one day flourishes with its flowers and then the wind blows and we wither and crumble. But the love of the Lord is steadfast for generation after generation of those who fear him. You see a little bit of that going on here. And so Elijah's strength, somewhat revived, and he takes this 40-day journey down to Mount Horeb. So here's the question, why does he go to Mount Horeb? Or here's the better question, what's the other name for Mount Horeb in the Bible? What's that? Sinai. Sinai. There you go. Right? This is Mount Sinai. 
This is where God first showed up with the people of Israel, right? First gave them the commandments, gave them the law, showed up in, you know, in this blazing fire and this tempest that made the mountains shake. It's also the place where a, a similar scene happens, right? Do you remember, um, you know, as Moses is up there receiving the law from God, what are the Israelites doing on the ground? They're taking all their gold and they're burning it down and they're fashioning it into a golden calf. And so Moses comes down and says, are you kidding me? I can't leave you alone for two seconds here and you're making these golden images and you're bowing down to them. And so he has to deal with them. And then he goes back up the mountain because he's broken the tablets of stone. He's got to go back up and get another round. And now he's got to deal with God because God is ready to smite these people. And he has to say, hold on a second, you can't do that because think of your testimony or whatever. And God says, okay, yeah, you're right. I'm summarizing the story here. And he says, okay, you know, go get them. Let's go. On we go through the wilderness to the promised land. And Moses says, yeah, hold on a second here. <laughs> Essentially, this is how I'm reading Moses' reaction. I'm not going anywhere unless I get of a demonstration of your glory. <laughs> I need to see your glory here. And so God tucks him away in a cleft of the rock on Mount Sinai, and he causes his glory to pass by him. And out of that glory, right, he hears, he hears I am Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And I wonder if that's similarly why Elijah's going down to Sinai. Okay, if I'm going to continue, I need to see the glory of God. Or I need to have at it with him. He's got to show up. We, we've got to deal with this. We've got, to, we've, got to, we've got to make an arrangement here. I don't know what. But he goes down to Sinai. He goes down to Mount Horeb. He hides in a cave. Maybe it's the exact same cave that, uh, that Moses was in. Who knows? And, uh, and God comes to Elijah. What are you doing here? And I love this response too. God knows why he's there. God's not on a fact-finding mission. Hey, Elijah, I don't understand this. Why are you here? No, God knows. And why this is pleasant to me is that I like that God is inviting Elijah's charge. Before he even deals with Elijah, before he says, Elijah, let me, before you even start talking, let me just cut you off right here. He says, Elijah, what are you here for? Right? And... You know, it's almost to, it's 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 to make this point that in in the scriptures you you have this open invitation to come to God freely with your questions and your wrestles, and you see this all throughout the page of scripture, right? You see it in the Psalms, which are Israel's prayer book, and they're loaded with questions: Why, God? Why are you allowing this? How long? Why is it that you have forsaken me? And that's Israel's divinely inspired prayer book. It's as if God is saying, "Yeah, at times you need to pray this way." Right? Or it's on the lips of, you know, we saw this in the book of Revelation, when you see the, the, the saints gathered around the throne in heaven in this in-between time. They're not all just singing songs and dancing and having a great old time. They're crying out and they're pleading, How long, O Lord, faithful and true, until you judge? Or you see it on the lips of Christ himself as he's hanging from the cross. And he's taking his stand alongside the generations of God's people. And he is letting loose the cries and the questions that have plagued the hearts and minds of God's people. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All right, so the Christianity is not 
of faith that means you just got to buck up, suck it up, deal with your questions or issues, right? Christianity in the Bible invites you to wrestle that out with God. And in fact, I would say to you, right, that if you find yourselves in circumstances and situations where you are weighed down, you are crushed, you don't know how to put one foot in front of the other, and you can't possibly think, how do I even go about having a relationship with God this moment? If I were to see God, all I would do is just spout off my questions, and how dare you this, how dare you that? We'll start there. Right? The Bible invites that. God says, yeah, when that's all you got, come to me with that. And we'll start there and we'll work with that. Come to me with your questions. Come to me with your charges, which is what Elijah does. He says, I have been faithful. I have been zealous. And nothing. I'm the only one left, which hasn't been an exaggeration. Even Elijah knows this. He knows there's Obadiah and a hundred other prophets out there. But he's saying, I'm the only one left. And she's trying to kill me too. Right? God invites that charge. Doesn't smite him down. Instead, he says, hey, Elijah, come out here and, and just watch. And there's this great wind that blows and shakes loose the rocks on the mountain, right, and start to come fall down. But God's not in that wind. And he, um, you know, causes fire to come down, causes this great earthquake. And, you know, here's the thing. Um, I, I imagine if I was Elijah... And he's thinking back to that original incident back at Mount Sinai. He's remembering, yes, yeah, exactly how God came. He came in a tempest. He came in a storm. He came in a fire. He came with this power that caused the whole mountain to shake. So here it is. Here's God coming. And, and, and each time we're told, God, yeah, God wasn't in that. God wasn't in the fire, wasn't in the wind, wasn't in the storm. And then there's this low whisper. <laughs> and, and, and God was in the whisper. Right, and uh, commentators wrestle with this. You know, what's going on here? Why is God not in the fire and the storm this time around? But he's in the quiet whisper. And we don't necessarily know the answer. We can take some guesses. You know, it could partly be that, well, sometimes when we're going through difficult and trying circumstances, we want to see the grand and the glorious. Or it could be, you know, maybe Elijah... You know, all those grand displays of God's power and his provision, it's maybe possible that Elijah had come to almost uh, idolize those grand displays of power instead of idolizing the one behind it. And so maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe God is saying, yeah, I'm not coming to you that in this time. I'm coming to you in a still, quiet whisper. Or maybe it's like, you know, sometimes when, when I feel like whatever, life is just unmanageable or whatever. My, one of my MOs or my reactions is to just boom, plow ahead to try to get control, get things back in order, to legislate control back into my life. And I'm going 100 miles an hour doing this or whatever. And it's like, well, if, if I'm going to meet with God, he's got to meet me on the way here because I'm going, don't, let, don't stop me here. I'm going to get this thing back under control. Sure, I'd love to have a conversation, but God, you got to come and you got to talk to me while I'm at work. And maybe God's saying, yeah, uh, you know, you're going to listen to me. If you're going to see me, interact with me, you're going to have to quiet yourself. You're going to have to listen carefully and attune yourself to the silence to hear from me. Or maybe he's just pointing to the primacy of his word. Right? Again, when so many might, you know, uh, look to the grand and the glorious and the religious spectacles or whatever to find that 
communion with God or whatever. Or maybe if you're a skeptic or a cynic on the outside, you're, it's like you're, you're calling for God to prove himself somehow in some way that satisfies your questions and your rational consistencies or whatever it is. And God's saying, yeah, no, that's not how this works. I reveal myself on my own terms. And so to commune with me, to hear from me, to be fed by me, you need to quiet yourself and submit yourself to the way I choose to reveal myself to you. This is the thing that shows up all throughout the scriptures, right? You go all the way back to that whole golden calf episode, right? Why was that so wrong? Because commandment number two was, hey, don't make any images of me. Don't fashion me in your own image. That was Israel's whole thing. They wanted a God they could see, that they could feel, that they could touch. And God says, I didn't reveal myself to you that way. You need to submit yourself to how I reveal myself to you. You Or maybe when uh, Jesus himself is in the wilderness and Satan is tempting him and trying him, and saying, hey, take that rock and turn it into bread or get up on this high place and throw yourself down. Let's see the angels come and rescue you. And what does Jesus say? We don't put the Lord our God to the test. And man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, right? Right, so how does God meet with us? He meets with us through his word that is given to us. You know, and after our wrestling and after our complaints and after our despair, if we're going to commune, if we're going to be fed by God, at some point we have to quiet ourselves. We have to open ourselves. We have to receive anew and submit again his word given to us, empowered by his spirit. Which reminds us who he is, reminds us what he's up to, reminds us what he's doing, and reminds us what we're called to as his servants. Right, And that's how this, this story kind of begins to wrap up. God reframes Elijah's perspective. He says, Elijah, I'm on the scene. I'm up to something. Might not be your plan, but I got Hazael over here that I'm going to anoint as king of Syria. I got Jehu. I want you to anoint as king over Israel. And Elijah might be saying, wait a minute, Hazael, he's a pretty wicked guy. And we have no sense that Hazael ever converts to, to the God of the Bible. And Jehu, yeah, he goes in and he cleans house a bit, but he falls prey to the same sins of his fathers and his forefathers, so he just takes his stand under, along the list of failed kings. So there could be all these questions, and they're not answered, but God is just clearly saying, look, I'm up to something. I got my plan and my purposes. Your job is to go and to be used, right? All to say, you know, maybe here's sort of like this big picture principle that we have. Suffering, brutal reality that can be crushing at times. We bring active hearts to that. And how do we make sense of God in the midst of that? Well, first of all, we remember that God is always gracious and compassionate towards his people. He understands us. He understands our hardship. He doesn't come just beating on us, but he comes to feed and to nourish and to strengthen us. He comes inviting us to be genuine and open and honest with him. And then he comes with his word and he speaks and he calls and he sends. And our best life, has always lived receiving that word, submitting to it, and following suit in obedience. Sorry, it's a big topic. It's hard to sum it all up here in a 40-minute sermon. One more point. You can't leave the Elijah story without uh, circling back around on this. You know, there's going to be another episode on down in the biblical storyline where Elijah's going to find himself on another mountain. He's going to find himself on a mountain back up in the northern kingdom of Israel. He's going to be up there and on that mountain with Moses, disciples, and Jesus himself. Right? The Mount of Transfiguration. 
this mountain that Jesus goes up to hear from Elijah and Moses. And then he comes down, he sets his face for Jerusalem and the climactic events of his own life. And we're told that in that time that, you know, Moses and Elijah, they speak with him, they tend to, they tend to him, maybe minister to him. I imagine that scene, I don't know what they're talking about, but I imagine it would be something along the lines of Moses saying, hey, yeah, Jesus, I, I, I know what you're dealing with here. I, I, I had to give myself faithfully to be God's servant and I had to deal with a bunch of stiff-necked, hard-hearted people that were complaining every step of the way, right? And, or, or maybe Elijah's coming up and saying, yeah, and Jesus, look, I, I, I get it too, right? I was zealous for the Lord, and I had to work hard for the Lord, and it seemed like God was doing stuff. And then all of a sudden, this Jezebel lady, she keeps trying to kill me, and the stubborn people, and they're not turning, right? So I get it. And yet, in the midst of all that, God has proven himself faithful and steadfast, that he's up to something, and he's going to do it. And so as you go... <laughs> and embark on your own journey to give of yourself sacrificially for these hard-hearted, stiff-necked sinners. Know that God will be with you and strengthen you. And so Jesus comes down off that mountain. He sets his face towards Jerusalem. And what happens when he gets into Jerusalem? And he's strung up on that cross. And all the weight of, you know, the broken systems and unjust structures crushing him, all the weight of the sins of his people and the fickleness of our hearts and our, idolic, uh, our idolatrous tendencies are also placing on, being placed on Jesus, and he is bearing them into the grave himself. Or we could say it this way. He is bearing in himself the fire and the fury and the tempest so that God might speak to us in the still small voice. Right, that's the other thing about those images of fire and earthquake and wind. Like oftentimes through scripture, those are <laughs> images that uh, preclude judgment. Like think about the book of Revelation. We saw that several times. Or think about the people at the bottom of Sinai. They're terrified. They're like, this is it. We're going to die now because <laughs> fire, wind, and storm. Right, what's happening on the cross? Jesus is absorbing the fire, the wind, the tempest, so you don't have to. Right? And I mean, that's the last point that needs to be made here in relation to God and suffering. Why is it that God allows suffering and evil and wickedness to endure? Why does it take so long for him to bring his promises to completion? Well, we don't necessarily know the answer to that. But one thing we do know is what it's not. It's not because he doesn't love us and care for his people. And you see that clearly in Jesus on the cross. Or we know for sure that it's not because God doesn't get it. And he doesn't understand the depth and the heaviness of suffering and evil. Well, of course he does. That's one of the uniquenesses of the Christian faith. He's put forth his son to suffer all of that and to experience it to its fullness. Or it's not because God doesn't, he's asleep behind the wheel. Or he's out relieving himself like the God Baal or whatever. No, God is on the scene. He clearly is up to something. He's clearly doing something. He's putting his own son at the cross. Right? And so the last thing is, you know, as you, how do you survive? Maybe that's a better question. How do we survive in the midst of suffering? And I would say, you know, very clearly, you just look to this Christ hanging on this cross and you see there the full glory of God, right? That, that ought to snap your vision back to the glory of God, not this glory of God that is showing up in these grand displays of power, but in this still small whisper of a dying savior, right? The glory of God that is demonstrated in this most sacrificial act of love and compassion, Right? Or you look to this Jesus 
And you see, yeah, he knows me. He gets me. He understands the question before they even come off my lips. He's voicing my questions. Why God? Why have you forsaken me? Or you look to this Jesus and you see that God has a plan and he has made promises. And if this God has put forth his son, what is most precious and valuable to himself to secure these promises, nothing is going to get in the way. Not my sin, no power of hell. Nothing is going to get in the way. And if he has raised this son victorious over the power of death, I'm going to be a recipient of that one day. And so you look to this Jesus and you incline your ear to him. You quiet your heart and you listen to him and you let him speak by his spirit and by his word, reminding you of himself and his love, reminding you who you are as his servant, feeding you and then sending you. And as you go, relying on his word, leaning into his hand of mercy towards you, God will lead you, and he will lead you into life, which is meaningful and satisfying and even at times joyful in the midst of suffering. And he will do that faithfully until the great day comes when all questions cease before the glory of his throne and the glory of his promises fulfilled. And so may our God lead you safely in that. May he shepherd you with his love and his mercy until that great day comes. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.